This is a test for the next 30 seconds. I want you to give me the definition of two words. Before you go any further into this podcast, I want you to answer this question. You're like, Rick, I haven't even started this podcast, so I can't really go any further. But I want you to give me two definitions, a definite two definitions of two words. And the reason that I want you to do this is that your definitions of of empathy and sympathy, those are the two words. It's not a hard test. You already have a definition of empathy. You already have some kind of definition of sympathy. But before you go any further in this podcast, I want you to stop. And I, I want you to either scribble out on a piece of paper or bang out something on your keyboard. Or if you're writing with a friend, I want you to share with your friend right now. Push, push pause. Stop. And communicate your definition of the word empathy and your communication of the word sympathy. And, if, and as you do that, I want you to keep that in mind because here's the thing. However you describe those two words, define those two words, here's what's going to happen. It's going to describe who you are, how you think, and the kind of care that you provide for others. You are a believer. You are a disciple maker. You go and make disciples. Some of you will call yourself counselors, call yourself what you want, but you are a disciple, a discipler. And how you define these two words has already set the trajectory for the kind of care that people receive from you. And if you don't define these two words correctly, then the kind of care that you provide is, is incomplete, insufficient. It could be dangerous. Because of this radicalized, me too, egalitarian, caustic world in which we live— Knowing the problem with empathy is vital for every follower of Christ. And so perhaps you have time to write out your definition of empathy on a piece of paper. Would you do that? I mean, really, just do it. Just jot down a short sentence. It doesn't have to be much. It doesn't have to be a paragraph. Do it now. Maybe you are writing with someone as you're listening to this podcast. Will you share your definition of empathy with them? And then I want you to do the same thing for sympathy. All right, let's pretend that you have done that. You have paused the podcast. You've written it out. You banged it out on a keyboard. You shared it with somebody else. Now, with your view in mind, what I'm going to do first is I'm going to give you the definitions of these words. It's not my definition, Okay, I have a link here that you can click on and you can go right where I got the definitions and you can read the definition for sympathy and empathy and you can compare what they say, which is accurate, versus what you have put on a piece of paper, typed out on a keyboard or shared with someone. Welcome to the podcast. You're listening to Your Daily Drive. And I am Rick Thomas and I am so glad that you are here. I do not have statistics to prove what I'm about to say, but I would imagine that 95% of all Christians do not have an accurate definition of empathy and sympathy. And and there's one way that you can prove this to yourself. Again, I'm making up that statistic because I'm being honest with you. I I don't know, but this is what I suspect, and I suspect you suspect the same thing, especially after you listen to this podcast. And one of the ways that you can examine that yourself and get your own statistical data is that you just go and ask someone which is better. If you ask a a Christian, you can ask, obviously you can ask the world. The world's going to tell you that empathy is better. But I would would dare say that 95% 
of Christians will say empathy is better as well, and they are wrong. Not, not, not just wrong, as in that is incomplete and bad discipleship practices, but it could be dangerous. I mean, crazy dangerous if you don't have these definitions right in your mind and in your practice. And so the title of this podcast is The Destructive Force of Empathy and Why You Need to Know. All right. You intrigued? You have your definitions in mind? Perhaps you've already shared them with another person. Good for you. The word sympathy is the older word. We see it showing up in the English, English language circa 1570. The critical idea from sympathy, it connects three words in a linear fashion. The three words are together. You could use the, the preposition with, okay? You're together or you're with someone. That, either one of those works. But the three words are together or with. Feeling is next, and then suffering. And so those are the three big ideas with suffering. And the key idea in this definition and the definition of, of empathy is the preposition, with feeling suffering. It is two or more people together. So it's one person coming alongside helping another person. So you're together or you're with this person. And then it is understanding the difficulty. That's the feeling word in this linear collection of three words. And so you're together or with, you're feeling, you understand the problem. Then, of course, suffering, the third word, well, something has happened to an individual. Now, an illustration of sympathy is a doctor applying medicine to a wound. The doctor is with the person, obviously. The doctor understands the problem, obviously. And by implication, he goes beyond being with the person and understanding the person, the feeling. But he helps by bringing restorative care. And so coming alongside and caring, but not delivering restorative care is incomplete sympathy. All you have done is you have come alongside them and you somewhat understand what they are going through, but you have not brought restorative care. That is a breakdown of sympathy. Now, empathy, it's a more modern word. It entered the English vocabulary circa 1900, and it is a byproduct of Freudian, Jungian, and, and other like-minded secularists who desired to enlighten the culture about the problems and solutions of humanity. Now, that's an issue already because when Sigmund Freud is trying to help with human depravity and, and the problem with fallenness, well, he's going to fall down, as he has many times, with all sorts of his theories that he has put forth as, as fact and absolute truth. So that's an issue already, but this is what it comes out of, his kind of world and worldview. Now, here's the big idea with sympathy. It is also a linear collection of three words, and they are in this order, in, the preposition in, different from with, and so you be with someone or you enter into, two, two different ideas. And so it's in, feeling, and suffering, as opposed to with, feeling, and suffering, which is what sympathy is. The soul care provider is not together with the person who is suffering, but enters into the pain. It's an infusion. The word infuse or assimilate are helpful words to get your mind around. A, 
a purer understanding of empathy. The way it works from the victim side, the hurting side, is that the hurting person projects themselves and what they're going through in their pain. They project it into the helper. And so from the victim side, what you see is a mirror between the victim or the hurting person and the helper because they are projecting all that they understand, all that they know into the person. And of course, they grade the helper based on uh, how clearly they are mirroring what the hurting person is feeling. And if the counselor or the discipler does not become like the hurting person, then according to the victim, they are not genuinely empathetic. And according to that person, that is, well, that just won't do. You see, it's not about helping the way a sympathetic doctor would bring restorative care. Typically, the practitioners of empathy, they have understanding them is like the number one thing that a hurting person expects out of a counselor. And if the counselor is also beholding to the definition of empathy as the primary way to help a person, well, understanding them will be very high on their list. The best illustrations of empathy have something to do with jumping in with them to know them according to how the hurting person wants you to understand them. And so you will hear them say things like, like if empathy is not working, if you're not empathetic enough, you'll hear them say things like, well, you don't understand me, or I need someone who gets me. Too often, if you attempt to bring restorative care, go back to the doctor illustration, where you're not in it with them, but you, you are helping them, especially if the advice that you are giving is challenging advice, they'll probably re- react harshly by, by talking about how you didn't understand them. Empathy is the wrong need for the hurting. And unfortunately, I I would imagine that the majority of folks who, who want or provide it, who want it or provide it, they don't understand. Go back to your definitions now, as we are at this point in the podcast, and according to the definitions that I did not make up, I mean, this is what the words mean. How are the actual definitions of empathy and sympathy? How do they mirror your definitions? Let me give you an illustration of this. Suppose you and your child were on a boat. Your 10-year-old boy falls into the water. He cannot swim. You're standing on the deck, and you must make a split-second decision. Here are your two choices. You jump into the water to save your son. That's what empathy is. In, that's the preposition. He's flailing, panicking, yelling for help. Or you throw him a life preserver and you yell at him to grab it, hold on, and you'll pull him to safety. That is sympathy. I was looking up this illustration on on the internet, the source of all knowledge, and I I read this article on Gizmodo uh, by Esther Ingles Arkell, and and she said this uh, about saving somebody from water. If you witness someone drowning, most emergency responders agree that what you need to do is to look around for something buoyant before you even get in the water. 
get in a boat or try to throw the drowning person something from shore, swimming to someone who is drowning and trying to take hold of them is dangerous even for professionals. Empathy is dangerous even for professionals. There's a reason, as their English Arkell says, there's a reason why lifeguards carry those orange plastic buoys. And it's not, need, it's not their need to accessorize throwing a drowning person something to keep them afloat so they don't hang on to you is essential. That's from the Gizmodo article that's linked here, and you're welcome to read that. The empathetic person would jump in the sea with the boy, and the chances of both of them dying are high. The sympathetic person has more wisdom, they have more experience, and they have more soul care expertise. They would insightfully see the problem for what it is and creatively figure out a way of helping them without either one of them dying. Now, the obvious question is, why do so many Christians talk about empathy as being better than sympathy? Well, there are several answers to that question, and the most apparent is, is they don't know any better. Okay, obviously, they don't know any better get it. But you want to follow up and say, why, why do they not know any different? Well, well, the answer to that is the slow dumbing down of the Christian mind to where we think more Freudian, but don't even know it. The truth is that Freud, Freud and his friends have had a, a more significant influence on the Christian worldview than than anyone else when it comes to sanctification, counsel, discipleship, how to help others. But it's more than Freud and his helpers. Sigmund was just a cog in the relativistic worldview machine. Now, in this case, I want to pull relativism apart and just look at one thread of relativism, and I'm speaking specifically of ethical relativism because we we're talking about helping people we're talking about ethics ethical relativism means that morality is beholden to the expected and accepted norms of the current culture relativism means that we are beholden to the expected and accepted norms of the current culture. But again, I'm talking about one strand of relativism. I'm talking about ethical relativism. And so now we're talking about morality is beholden to the expected and accepted norms of, a, of the current culture. What the predominant society believes is how we all must think. And if you do not believe and practice as the culture does, there will be punitive reactions. And we all know this. Our culture does not believe in the Bible as the absolute authority in our lives. They believe any truth is authoritative, except for the Bible, of course. And so one way that relativism, which is, again, the, the total obliterating of morality into it is diluted into its weakest element, so is palpable to every possible person without offending anybody. That's relativism. That's ethical relativism, and, and one way that it has leaked into discipleship and counseling methodologies and later turning into a destructive torrent is a belief that you, you can't tell me things that I don't want to hear. We're in that culture. You can't offend anybody. And that's what relativism does. Even if what you're saying is correct, you can't say it because it offends me. 
And that's what relativism does. It takes morality, mixes it with so much water that it has no potency or impact or transformation at all because you can't say anything. The cultural Me Too movement is a perfect example of this relativistic problem. You've heard the proponents say, believe all women. You see, you have to believe that in a relativistic culture because you can never say that's, that's ludicrous. Every believer with common sense knows how problematic that is. Black Lives Matters has also made a similar mistake. But if you speak out against the overcorrection of both the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter, you don't understand them. You don't understand the problem. You're not empathetic to the problem. You're not in the problem. You don't understand it. You're standing outside the problem. And because you're not empathetic, you, you, you just don't get it. You don't understand me. Being sympathetic has nothing to do with dismissing the problem. Can you hear that loud and clearly? Women have experienced horrific abuses. So have men. So have children. Black people have received some of the harshest treatment in this country and many other guilty nations. The same goes for the Jews. The same goes for other ethnic groups. The person who is beholden to empathy as it is defined and as they actually practice have no tolerance whatsoever. It's an overcorrection, and so it's all in. Sympathy sees the problem from a macro, that is an above-the-ground, broad-swath view and a micro view. Abuse happens to this individual micro. Macro, though, allows you to understand the entire scope of the problem. And so you're not dismissing the Me Too movement as, far, as, as though people aren't abused or Black Lives Matter, as though that there isn't racism in our country. That's ludicrous. Of course people are abused, and of course there is racism. But sympathy sees all the elements of the issue. Being the sympathetic person refuses. That person refuses to drown with you in your Me Too movementness or your Black Lives Matter or your victimology. The sympathetic person not only refuses to jump in and drown, they refuse to let you manipul manipulate them into the deadly waters, to, even if you say they have no compassion. To say they have no compassion is short-sighted minimally, and it is fatal to the victim in its worst case. Hurting people who do not understand the differences and dangers between empathy and sympathy will always escalate the problems and their relationships. The drowning victim will scream louder and will flail more viciously if you don't jump in with them. It is one thing to understand them, but if you attempt to put medicine on their wounds, they will react in such a way that healing won't come and they ironically, will exacerbate their pain. Now, here's the thing for the soul care provider. A weak soul care provider will succumb to, their, to the soul care provider's insecurities. 
the person who is providing the care, the doctor who is so insecure, will succumb to this and overreact by overcorrecting the problem. In that case, the victim is now driving the car. The victim now has all the power as to how restoration will happen, and it rarely works. In response, if you don't do it their way, they will slam the door on their way out while maintaining their victimhood because the sympathetic helper did not understand them. They weren't empathetic. These reacting victims rarely find help as they bind themselves in self-imposed incarceration because they refuse redemptive soul care. Their comeback will either be anecdotal evidence that justifies why they have not changed or how all the helpers were wrong. This unwitting, and I'm saying unwitting because, honestly, I think that they're just ignorant and they don't understand the trap that has has been laid for them and they have stepped in it and now they're incarcerated by it. This unwitting tactic is more complicated because strands of what they say are usually accurate. They have been victimized. They have been hurt. There are racists in the country. And so they have strands of of truth, and they use this anecdotal evidence to support their truth claims, and they are at least true enough to keep them imprisoned by their victimhood. Part of the problem as to why we are at this point is also not only relativism, but it is an assault on all hierarchies, all structures. You see, This is what a hierarchy looks like in a counseling construct, and this is problematic for people who are beholden to empathy. See, sympathy has you over me. You are over me, as it should be. Empathy, you're on the boat, but empathy has you in the quicksand, in the water. It has that in the quicksand feel to it. Sympathy has that you you are over me feel to it. That's a hierarchy that people don't appreciate anymore. We don't believe in hierarchies. If you don't have an equality for all, egalitarian framework, you're old-fashioned and you're unwelcome. The culture has been dismantling hierarchical structures for many generations, not just in the counseling office. The way the dismantling of hierarchies plays out in soul care sounds something like the following. If you don't get me, or if you have not walked in my steps, or if you don't understand me, or if you're not in my suffering with me, those are mantras. I've heard them all. But a sympathetic person would never do that. The sympathizer must stand outside and even above the sufferer which is the only way they can competently and comprehensively help a victim. But when you mix the legitimate abuses that came from a hierarchical situation, meaning that, let's say, a pastor abused someone, and so there's a legitimate abuse in a hierarchical situation, and they are plenteous. Sadly, they are plenteous. But when you mix that a hierarchical failure into a relativistic culture, there will be visceral and hateful reactions toward anyone standing in the rightful place of authority. Many Christians are socialist, 
in their expectations of counseling and discipleship because of the, the sameness expectation and there is no hierarchy within counseling or discipleship. And so they're basically sanctification socialist. What they don't understand is how they have erected a false argument that will never lead to restoration. The, the false argument is that, is that if you don't enter into my suffering by walking a mile in my shoes, you can't help me. And, and they will use Jesus as their example because Jesus understands. I've heard that so many times. Well, Jesus understands. He took on our suffering. He entered into my pain. Or did he? Well, they have a proof text. You probably already know what it is, Hebrews 4.15. Listen to Hebrews 4.15 in light of my definitions of, of, of the actual definitions of sympathy and empathy. 4.15 in Hebrews says, For we, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in, in, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There's two key ideas in this verse in the context of this podcast, sympathizing yet without sin. Jesus is a sympathizing Savior, not an empathizing one. You see, Jesus can't be like you because you're a fallen person. That's where that part about yet without sin comes into play. Jesus can't be like you. He's always above you. Jesus can't think like you because you have impure motives. Jesus hasn't done much of anything like you. Sin, marriage, children, in-law, smoke weed, been in jail. I'm just giving you my list. And it's an extensive list. You don't want Jesus to be like you. But he will stand above you, reaching out his hand to you, hoping you will grasp it so he can pull you onto the redemptive rock. Turning Jesus into the rescuer of your dreams rather than him saving you from yourself, that's your gospel, not his. Some Christians have created this a, a false opposite construct to support their wrong beliefs about empathy. You know what a false opposite is? It's when you put two things together that aren't really opposites. Let me give you an example of it. Let's say that you were a... a a fan of the Los Angeles Lakers basketball team. And here's the false argument. This is not a true statement, but this is what a false argument is. You are a Los Angeles Lakers basketball fan, and you're not a Boston Celtics fan. And some people would call that a false argument, as though those two things are can't coexist. But in reality, those two things have a lot in common, like both fans love basketball. And so being a Laker van, a fan versus a Celtic fan, that's not a false argument. A, a, a false argument would be a basketball fan and someone who, who disdains basketball. They like neither the Lakers nor the Boston Celtics. So in the counseling world, the empathetic believer believes you can't love me and wound me at the same time. That is a false opposite. It is absolutely not true. The false opposite would be that you love me and you refuse to speak hard things to me. That's the false opposite. Truthfully, in most cases, you do have a victim-centered construct, and this will be so hard for people to hear. It's not unusual for a victim to have a, sh a, a shred of blame but you can never say that out loud. 
because you're not empathetic. I mean, in essence, you have to believe all women as an example. You can never talk about culpability. You can never talk about the victim-centered construct. In the medical world, if you were empathetic, you would never do anything that hurt anyone. Most patients would become worse off, even die with that kind of belief. If you have a false opposite that says empathy is always believing, always being kind, and never challenging anyone, then you have suppressed truth, and you'll never be free. False opposites always suppress truth. We live in an overcorrecting culture. Rather than seeing the abuses of whatever the issue is, which is typical in a fallen world, and reacting with common sense and wisdom, we oversteer the car to our detriment. I want to give one final illustration, and then we'll We'll finish up. We see this problem all the time with people overreacting to the police in the United States. There are corrupt police, which no sensible person would deny. But the empathetic worldview says that they have no right to think, to suggest, to imply, or to investigate as though the victim of the crime has no guilt whatsoever, no matter how small it is, or even if it were true that they were truly innocent. Suppose you were in a car accident and it was not your fault, but the police talked about or talked to the guilty party first. Would you believe in empathy or sympathy in that situation? Would you want the police person to enter into the pain of the other person and not stand outside and above the fray to make an honest assessment and investigation? I have a call to action at the end of this podcast. The title of the podcast is The Destructive Force of Empathy. And why you need to know, I make a strong appeal for you to read the call to action questions and work through them. And as always, if you want to talk to us about this podcast, come to our website. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.